WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, January 4th. Happy 2024. And happy year of the $34 trillion United States government debt. That figure has been in the news since New Year's, but with very little context about how to process such a mind-numbingly big number. Is $34 trillion a red flag data point? A normal acceptable figure considering the size of our overall economy? Does it portend trouble ahead for Medicare and Social Security and inflation and devaluation of the dollar? Or just a big round but not that bad number for Republican politicians to take aim at in an election year as a scare tactic? We will get a take on this now from none other than New York Times columnist and CUNY Graduate Center professor, Paul Krugman. He's known as an economic progressive who takes no prisoners when it comes to Republican truth twisting. But he also did write a column in October called Why We Should But Won't Reduce the Budget Deficit. So let's see what he thinks. Dr. Krugman, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, good to be back on. So first, let me ask you to put that $34 trillion figure in perspective. Open-ended question. How do we begin to process what that kind of number with so many zeros means in human terms. Okay, first thing to say is, you know, this is America. Uh, everything about America is gigantic. And so, you know, it, it, anything you name, even how obscure it is, it's going to be a gigantic number. So the, the right way, you know, people generally put it as a percentage of GDP, um, and they don't usually use the, the $34 trillion is partly money, that the U.S. government owes to itself. It's a little bit complicated, but we uh, that's kind of the, the gross number that appear, appears on the, the desk, but it's not all owed to the public. Some of it is owed to the Social Security Administration. Some of it is owed to the Federal Reserve, which is effectively part of the government, at least for these purposes. So it's it's somewhat less than that. Where we are is it's, it's over 100% of GDP, which is not great, uh, but lots of countries, uh, including us, have had debt levels this high or in some cases much higher without getting into serious trouble. So the, the number itself is in context, uh, not what, you know, I, it would be if I could wave a magic wand and make half of it go away, sure, mm. but it's, it's not, we're not on, on the edge of any kind of catastrophe. To wonk out a little bit coming out of that answer, the relationship with GDP, GDP is roughly the size of the overall economy of the country, or That's you right. can describe it uh, a little more specifically than that with your expertise. And so mm -hmm. if the deficit, the total, the total national debt 
becomes bigger than the size of the economy at a given point in time, that's a problem, or explain that. No, not really. I mean, it's like it's like comparing it. The GDP is the value of all stuff produced in the economy, roughly speaking. Uh, and it's the reason that we look at GDP is because at some level it's uh, it's the tax base. You know, we have a government. The government can tax pretty much anything it wants to. So GDP represents all the stuff that the government can tax. Um, obviously, it it isn't ever going to tax uh, all of it, but it's you know, it's a substantial part. So GDP roughly is a measure of, of the potential revenue of the government. Um, and it's an amount per year. Um, the debt is just a number. It's the total amount that the government owes. And it's kind of like, you know, if, if somebody has a mortgage that is more than their annual income, that's, uh, that's quite common. That happens all the time. And nobody says, oh, that's terrible. Uh, that's, a, that's a catastrophe. Uh, because uh, the question is, what is the cost of servicing the mortgage? And how does that compare with the family's resources? So if, if you ask, you know, is the, is the cost of interest uh, on this debt, and even that, if we get into it, it's not, it's not really the right number. Is the cost of interest on this debt un, you know, unpayable? Given the resources available to the federal government, no, it's not. And it's uh, uh, always you want to scale these things. We we just use GDP as a kind of convenient indicator of how big is mm-hmm. the base on which the government can draw. So your October column, why we should but won't reduce the budget deficit, um, that had uh, I mean that makes it sound like you're more concerned than in your previous answer. Yeah, I'm more concerned that than I was in the past, partly because it has gotten bigger, um, which causes some problems, partly because when I wrote that, interest rates on government borrowing were had gotten pretty high, which makes you worry more about the debt snowballing. Now, those interest rates have come down a lot since I wrote that. So part of the concerns I had have diminished. But look, it would be... If we had a smaller government budget deficit, I mean, a budget deficit does two things. It adds to the debt, which is, you know, matters, but isn't, isn't nearly as critical as lots of people think. It also adds spending power to the economy, which is somewhat inflationary. Now, we've actually got inflation under control pretty much right now. Nobody will believe what we have, but we've done it partly by raising interest rates a lot. And if the budget deficit was smaller we could cut interest rates further and faster than that looks likely that we're going to, which would be a good thing. So this is a time where, you know, much more than uh, five years ago, the budget deficit was really just nothing. to shouldn't have been an issue at all. Uh, now the deficit's bigger. The circumstances are a little bit less favorable. So, you know, if, if you could deal with it, if if we could do something great like uh, actually start collecting all the money that uh, wealthy tax evaders owe, uh, that would be more helpful even than in the past. I saw that that column of yours in October focused largely on long-term interest rates as something worrisome for you. Why long-term interest rates? Well, short-term interest rates first move around a lot because they they're a policy tool. And anyway, the government mostly, um, first of all, the government 
does a lot of its borrowing long term. And even if it doesn't, what we're interested in is how much is it going to cost to finance the government. And long term interest rates are kind of the market's forecast of what average short term interest rates are going to be over the long term. So long term interest rates are, are your gauge of you know how expensive is it to raise this money. And they shot up uh, for a while there to levels that were well above where they've been very low for many years, and they shot up uh, to about 5% for a little while there. They're now under 4%, or they were when I last checked the financial news this morning. Um, so that's, you know, that takes off a, a fair bit of the pressure. But yeah, that's, yeah, uh, uh, yeah the, the, you know, the interest rate on overnight money may be what the Federal Reserve targets, but it's not really important if we're talking about these issues. Right. So if the long-term interest rates are high and the government's borrowing a lot of money, uh, the amount, the percentage of our tax dollar that goes just to paying off debt before they give us any government services is going to be higher. So long-term interest rates are a problem for that reason, if I understand you correctly. Yeah. And I mean, even there, I mean, the government can run deficits. So it doesn't mean they, they, the government is not constrained by the amount of cash available not now in the United States and not for truly many years to come. But you do worry a little bit about the possibility of snowballing debt, that you borrow to cover your expenses and you have to pay interest on the borrowing and then that means more interest payments in the future and so on. Yeah. Um, when, when, uh, now, the, when long-term interest rates are high, that snowballing process becomes you know, a bigger concern. Uh, you always want to offset uh, against that, the fact that the U.S. economy is growing and inflation is gradually reducing the purchasing power of that debt. So, um, it's a, you know, it's R minus G. If you're doing this stuff as an economist talking in cryptic language, you compare the the interest rate adjusted for inflation on government borrowing with the real growth rate of the economy. And for most of the past 20 years, R has been less than G, so there really isn't any snowballing effect. But lately, R has been a bit more than G, and so you start to you, you get more concerned. But I think that the main thing in all of this is to you know appreciate that something can be concerning without being here on fire concerning. Yeah. And that's where we are on, on, on the but, By the way, let me ask you just a sort of curious consumer question on short and long-term interest rates, something that some of our listeners may have run into if they tried to buy like a normal bank CD. Because it looks like interest rates for bank CDs are inverted. That is, I see you can buy a one-year certificate of deposit now that returns around 5%, depending on the bank. But longer-term yeah. CDs pay lower interest rates, even though they get, the bank gets to hold and invest your money for longer. Isn't that backwards from the way things usually work? Uh, it is. Uh, it's it's an inverted yield curve, again, to use more uh, econo jargon. Um, but it, what's happening here is it, when the bank offers you an interest rate on a CD, if they offer you an interest rate on a two-year CD, they have to comp uh, bear in mind that they are going to either invest the money for you know, for two years, but think, think of them as investing it short term. So they're going to invest the money for one year and then reinvest it for year two. And if they think that one-year interest rates are going to be lower a year from now than they are today, then they're going to offer a lower interest rate on a two-year CD than a one-year. And they do expect interest rates to be lower because where we are right now is that ultimately um, 
short-term interest rates are controlled by Jay Powell on the Federal Reserve, um, which raised rates a lot uh, in 2022 um, to fight inflation and is now, by everybody's projection, going to lower them a lot now that inflation has come way down. So the, the bank is expecting, the markets are expecting interest rates, short-term interest rates to come down, which is why you get paid less on a two-year CD than a one-year CD. Here's a question from a listener via text message. We'll go to the phones in a minute. First one, though, from, from a texter writes, I would love to hear the guests talk about student loan debt and the economics impact, economic impacts of both the increasing debt and options for forgiveness when it comes to student loans. Um, well, I mean, a lot of student loan debt is basically uh, government guarantees. So even with it, it's the we had we have the sort of easy power to forgive um, most or all of it. Um, the and the main reason for doing that. I mean, there is there, there are some economic costs. I mean, when we ha- you have a lot of people who are, are coming out of school with a lot of debt, that really does tie down their personal options. It kind of immobilizes them. It, it reduces the dynamism of the economy a bit. Um, but also, a lot of it is just it shouldn't have happened. We had a lot of a lot of debt run up for education of dubious value. We just, in general, we want an educated populace, and then we say, okay. Everybody get educated. Oh, by the way, you're now in debt servitude for many years. Um, the trouble is that the Biden administration has done pretty much as much in the way of forgiveness as it can without uh, control of Congress, which it doesn't have now uh, and barely had uh, even in the first two years, uh, or the approval of the Supreme Court. And so they've been knocked back a bit. So if the you know it's not. Student debt is is a it's like everything with the U.S. It's a big number; it's trillions of dollars. But it's not on it's not like mortgage debt, um, which is is a huge number and and is decisive for the economy in many ways. Uh, so, I mean, I, I would say basically we get as much, given the political realities, we get as much student get debt forgiveness and forbearance as we can. But um, it's it's not going to move the needle much in terms of what you think is going to happen to the U.S. economy. David in Inwood on the $34 trillion federal debt. Uh, David, you're on WNYC with Paul Krugman. Hi, Brian. Longtime supporter and fan. I just, uh, we're talking about this big number, and I'm wondering to whom do we owe this money to? Are, are some of it owed to foreign governments and entities? Who lends the government the money, and who do we owe this money to? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And the answer is some of it is foreign individuals, some of it is foreign governments. A lot of it is U.S. Uh, citizens and residents and um, corporations and banks. So it's, it's a bunch of people. Um, it's, uh, I mean, there's a completely different number, which is the total amount that the U.S. owes to the rest of the world, which is a very big number. A lot of that is private debt. But, you know, it um, um, to a very large extent, though, really, at some level, it's money we owe to ourselves. You know, when people say we're burdening our children with debt, what we're actually doing is we're, we're there's a bunch of money that, 
that U.S. citizens uh, in their uh, wearing the clothes of the federal government owe to U.S. citizens wearing the clothes of investors. And um, uh, so it's not most of it is not actually a net claim on the future. Most of it is a claim of one group of, of Americans on on another group of Americans. Um, well, to that point, you know, I, I NPR Morning Edition had a Bernie Sanders advisor on this week on the $34 trillion national debt who said the debt is nothing to worry about because it really means the government is putting money in our pockets. It's printing money that it distributes into the private economy without taxing back. So if it's distributing more money than it's taxing, then the national debt turns out to be like a subsidy of Americans. I'm not sure I buy it in those terms. Have you heard that explanation of the debt? Yeah, it's, uh, again, um, there, the, um, there is a view which I sort of 90% share, which is that the number on the debt doesn't really matter. What really matters is basically looking at who's, who's giving money to whom. Now, the thing is, however, that the U.S. economy does have limited resources. So if we hand out a lot of money, um, then someone somewhere has to spend less. That's, you know, if you, if you empower, it, it, it's different when the economy is depressed, but it's not. We have 3.7% unemployment. So we're, we're an economy that's running pretty hot. And um, if we give a, one group of people more money to spend and buy more stuff, then we've got to persuade someone else to buy less stuff to, to make room for those purchases. And that's the sense in which it's not harmless to be running a budget deficit. It's, it is, at the very least, reshuffling. It's going to require that, that somebody pay. And uh, at the moment, what we're doing is we're, again, we've been, we, we have relatively high interest rates. So the, the money that's being handed out um, in the form of budget deficits is being offset to a certain degree by reduced purchases of new homes, um, by reduced investment. Uh, you know, some, uh, there have been some uh, green energy projects that have been canceled because of high interest rates. And if you like, that is the kind of thing where you, you do worry at least a little bit about budget deficits. How much of the $34 trillion does China own? Oh, gosh, I actually haven't even updated on that. But, you know, uh, that, is, that is the last thing you should be worried about. I mean, uh, what's China going to do? I mean, it, it's not as if uh, uh, one one person, uh, I think Dean Baker, a friend of mine, said about the the fact that China owns a fair bit of U.S. debt. That that China has an empty water pistol pointed at America's head. I mean, we're going to try and think it through. So the Chinese say, "We don't like that U.S. debt. We're going to sell it off, and then somebody else will buy it." Uh, might weaken the dollar a bit, but there's some U.S. manufacturing would actually welcome a weaker dollar. Uh, so. Uh, the idea that this somehow uh, gives the China leverage over the United States, if anything, is the other way around, is that uh, if there's a real rupture between China and America, China suddenly finds that a lot of its assets, which are U.S. debt, I mean, I don't think we're going to get to that. I hope we don't get to that point. But it, think of it as, as uh, there, there were a lot of foreign assets that Russia owned when it invaded Ukraine. That was the that didn't make Russia stronger. It made Russia weaker because it meant that that Putin could have some of his assets uh, seized. 
So last question um, about another story that's been in the news, and I wonder if you, as somebody who writes about economics, thinks it's related. Um, All these asylum seekers and other migrants coming into New York and coming into the country, um, which, you know, who get portrayed as an economic burden in the short run because of all the services um, that, that they require, obviously a very big issue in New York City, if these folks are, by and large, much younger than the American population as a whole, are we planting the seeds by opening the doors very wide, maybe even wider than we have them, um, for more of a balanced budget in the future, or is that the wrong way to look at it because they'll need a lot of services? No, it's exactly the right way to look at it. The services at issue... Particularly, you know, the, the the first few months after somebody arrives, they might need a lot of services. But bringing in younger workers who will be paying into the system for decades before they start to collect benefits is exactly what the doctor ordered. A higher higher immigration uh, would be, would uh, basically solve our you know sufficiently higher immigration would solve our our long run fiscal problem. Um, and one of the sort of cynical things, but you know, undocumented immigrants are even better from a fiscal point of view because they actually do pay uh, taxes, uh, but they aren't entitled to benefits. So that's not that's not the way you want to run a country. But um, but no immigration. If if you want to ask what would improve projections, long run budget projections, in a way that made us look much much more sustainable than we do under current uh, under current projections, the answer would be higher immigration. It's the best thing that you can do. Paul Krugman, Nobel Laureate in Economics, New York Times columnist, distinguished professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and author of his um, of many books, including his latest, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.